right, welcome to Objection to the Forum. This is Justin Humphreys. I'm here today with Russell Nugent, and we're going to talk a little bit of uh, small business startup law, some intellectual property. So I encourage everyone to uh, to call in. The number is 910-299-7535. So we're going to have uh, a good resource to answer any questions you have about starting a business or learning more about intellectual property law. So welcome, Russell. Thank you. So, Russell, just to, to begin, can you explain a little bit about what the term intellectual property means and, and what type of law you practice? Sure. So, uh, intellectual property law is a broad term that's given to a number of different areas of the law that help you protect uh, basically intangible property, uh, something you can't necessarily hold in your hands. Um, <clears throat> the classic example, of course, is patent law. It includes trademark law. It includes trade secret copyright law and a little bit of uh, some uh, of other regulations. Uh, particularly FTC type stuff. Uh, but in essence, uh, what it gets used for more often than not is a, it's a means or vehicle to protect uh, somebody's idea or the manifestation of an idea or their branding or some other creative work that they've created uh, and that they're building a business around, something that has some sort of, usually has some sort of business or financial value. And basically it's a means of preventing somebody from taking the idea and just and knocking it off and taking it running with it. So kind of what I'd like to do with the program, we, we do uh, four 15-minute segments. And so I'd kind of like to begin getting into patents and, you know, what, what is a patent? What does it protect? What does it protect? When should you get one? And to kind of distinguish those between copyrights or trademarks or the other types of intellectual property. Okay. Well, patents are for inventions in essence. That's uh, more often not what they're for. Um, trademarks are really to protect a brand identity. Copyright protects some sort of, a, you know, some sort of artistic expression. And trade secret law is sort of a catch-all category for business information that's not readily available to everybody else, uh, but has business values as a result of not being known to competitors. So, uh, getting back to patent law, patent law, patent is a, a patent is a uh, essentially a business tool. Uh, a lot of intellectual property rights are negative rights in that they give you the right to prevent someone from doing something, and that's what a patent does: is it prevents you or gives you the right to stop somebody from making, using, selling, offering to sell or even importing the subject of the, of the patent itself, the invention. Uh, so it's a pretty good tool to the extent that it's applicable to whatever it is that you're looking to make money off of or that you're looking to monetize. It's a pretty good tool uh, to uh, develop market exclusivity. Investors talk about having a moat around your business or something along those lines. It, it creates room for you to operate uh, in a particular area so that you have the opportunity to go ahead and develop uh, your business and your product without somebody immediately taking it and, and running and taking knocking it off and making it themselves. Do patents have to be a tangible item that, you know, like a, a, a widget or an invention that you can hold in your hand or, or are there other patents available for processes or, um, or ideas? It's a good question. So one of the main things I want people to understand is that you don't patent an idea. You patent the manifestation of an idea. You've got to so-called reduce the, uh, the invention to practice is the way they refer to it. Patents can protect a variety of different things. The, what most people consider to be a patent is what's called a utility patent. And that's going to be a patent on a thing, a widget, or possibly a method or a process of doing something. Um, they also have design patents, and that's for an ornamental design that's applied to a functional product, a table shaped like a fish or something like that. Um, that's a little bit a little bit different than copyright itself because it applies to the tangible or the physical utilitarian product. Um, they also have plant patents, uh, which frankly I don't uh, mess with very much. I don't know a whole lot about bot botany, but you can actually protect plants through a couple of different uh, patent processes as well. So it provides you know it's a it's sort of a broad cat or a broad number of categories of, of different types of subject matter that you can uh, 
that you can patent. But the key there is to understand it's got to be something more than just the idea for a product. You've got to actually be able to make. One of the keys to a patent application is you've got to be able to explain to, to everybody else how uh, to make and use the, the subject of your, uh, of your patent. Um, if the disclosure isn't good enough for somebody else that also it works in that field to be able to figure out what you did and put it together and do it themselves, then frankly your, your patent isn't enabled, uh, which is to say it's not really valid. So the patent law that you practice, do most of the inventors and business people that you deal with, do they have a, a kind of a finished product that they take to you and say, Russell, I'd like to patent this? Or how does, how does that process work um, for what you need in order to, to begin a patent application? Well, that's a very good question. Patent law tends to be unforgiving as opposed to other areas of intellectual property law, uh, which is to say there are a number of different things that you can do that will prevent you from getting a patent later on down the road. So it's important to go and speak to somebody at the very early stages. Most people come to me when they figured out how to transition from idea to prototype. Um, sometimes it's a very early stage prototype and frankly they're still fleshing it out and that sort of thing. I usually wind up getting involved before they have the final version that they're going to sell uh, in hand and ready to go. It's uh, usually a much earlier process than that, largely because they've got to disclose uh, something in order to get people on board with helping to manufacture and distribute and do all the things they aren't necessarily in a position to do. Uh, and to do that, any patent attorney worth their salt will tell them to try and file something and get them to sign a non-disclosure, but at least try to file something uh, yeah. before you sit down and disclose to anybody. So the, as I understand it, the, uh, the, the governmental figures that decide whether to grant or deny a patent are, are referred to as patent examiners. Right. And so with that, do you, do you have to send them the prototype um, to, to get it approved? Or how do, what, what do you have to submit in a patent application? Just the application itself. Um, the application consists of a very detailed description of the invention, as we discussed earlier. It's got to explain to somebody how to make and use the invention. Uh, and usually it's, got, it's almost always got to be supplemented with drawings and figures in order to really understand. Once you sit down and try to explain just in text how to describe what something looks like, you'll realize really quickly why it is they need figures. Um, but you don't need to actually physically make anything. Uh, in theory, your reduction to practice, so to speak, it can be just filing the patent application itself. Um, the examiner will almost never ask for a prototype. As a matter of fact, um, I've probably been involved in processing several hundred, if not, well, involved in some level or another process, at least a thousand or so of these applications. And I've never seen an, uh, an examiner ask for a prototype. If they do that, that's probably a pretty big red flag. They probably don't think your invention works the way you say it does. And gotcha. they're looking to hold it in their hands and figure that out for themselves. So a lot of times you'll see products marketed and it'll say patent pending. And I think that kind of relates to the process you were talking about, about a patent attorney will tell you, just get something filed, you know, at least before you put it into the market. And what's the strategy behind doing that? The idea is to at least prove inventorship. Everybody's heard of a, what they call a poor man's patent. That's where you write the invention out, seal it up in an envelope and mail it to yourself. Well, that functionally is useless in the legal community. Uh, the closest you come to that is actually filing something called a provisional patent application. The idea is if you start working with somebody else, uh, and things fall apart and they decide to try and take the invention and run with it on their own, you can prove that you were the one that actually had rights to it that you invented yourself because you got a provisional patent application or something else on file. Um, so it does prevent disputes or can help prevent disputes over who actually owns the thing uh, somebody tries to take it from you. Let's say somebody's kind of a, a lurker or they discover your invention um, somehow and, and there's been nothing filed. Can you take someone else's idea and patent it? Or are there any repercussions for that if they don't have anything filed? Sure. Um, can you practically speaking do it and get away with it? Probably. Um, are you allowed to do it? No. Basically in that situation you're committing fraud on the USPTO because you're telling them that you invented something when you didn't invent it. You just took it from somebody else. Uh, and they're 
I'm not, I haven't done this myself, but I'm reasonably certain there's at least an opportunity to put prior art in front of the examiner so you can show, uh, you can show the, them that you know, the, you're the inventor, not the person that actually applied for the patent application. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions about that because a, a lot of times you'll hear first to file is kind of a, a phrase that, that's heard you know, maybe more the, of lay people saying that. But so if somebody was to steal your invention and then you can demonstrate that, that you used it first or thought of it first, is that a way to attack the validity of, of someone else's patent? Not really. It used to be. Uh, we are a first to file system as of I think it's 2013, which is to say that it's not uncommon in certain fields, particularly mechanical fields, for two people trying to solve the same problem to come up with very similar solutions. And under the old statute, what would happen is they would wind up in some sort of interference proceeding, uh, which is a very fact-specific and probably very difficult uh, and lengthy proceeding where you try to prove that you came up with it and that you actually diligently worked on it to try to make it into a reduced to practice, make it into a working invention, and then you filed it, that you started that process before the other person did. That leads to a whole lot of litigation, and that was a lot of the reason for, pat for switching to the first-to-file system. What I'm saying, what I was saying before is the, the examiner's not going to figure out that someone stole your idea and filed first on their own. Um, and I don't specifically know what mechanism you'd use to try and put that in front of them except to try to produce prior art that would then uh, negate their ability to get the, get the patent or, uh, through. Well, so it, it sounds like it's important to protect the, the your your invention or kind of keep it discreet what, before you're ready to, to make your patent application. You're right. And I think for most people seeking patent protection, that comes sort of as instinct. Patent clients are probably the most worried clients I've had about uh, being about confidentiality. I've been doing this for 16 years, and patent clients are the only people that will ask me as an attorney if I also need to sign an NDA. Yeah. Um, I have no other type of client seems to ask that. But yeah, they, they, the instinct is to keep it under wraps. And the key with patent laws to understand there are a number of things you can do, including disclosing the invention uh, without some sort of confidentiality in place and offering to sell the invention um, or even to sell the patent prior to uh, filing the application. You do that early enough, a year before you file. And again, it's the kind of thing where the examiner is not going to figure that out, so you may get the grant patent granted, but when you try to enforce your rights, somebody else is going to go back and figure out that your pre-filing activity may have prevented you or invalidated the patent that you spent all those years trying to get. Gotcha. So, you know, when I guess the, the people that you need to, I know your attorney, there's the attorney-client privilege, so that that's kind of ridiculous to get the attorney to sign an NDA. But for the our inventors out there, wh who would you advise them to secure NDAs from if they're um, if they're kind of if they have a need to share their invention with others? Typically, they'll go to somebody to help them develop the prototype or to figure out how to actually manufacture or get it on the market. And those folks are usually essentially independent contractors. They're offering that service. They're not trying to be in the same business that the inventor is in. So those folks will usually sign a non-disclosure if they're asked to do so. Um, and those are key people to try to get in place because there's no reason to create an, a non-confidential disclosure early on before you file. And it certainly doesn't help you in any significant way, and it definitely can come back to bite you. How, when you're putting together your NDA, um, kind of if you're sharing it with maybe fabricators or, or, or people that, that are potential investors or things of that nature, um, how specific do you need to be with your, your NDA? I try, being an attorney, I try to be vague. Um, so um, you don't really know exactly after the fact what the client wishes they would have kept confidential. So you don't want them to be real specific. I'm only, this NDA only covers, you know, X, Y, and Z. You definitely want to try to get it to cover the entire disclosure that you're making to them. So you basically 
phrase it in those terms. I'm going to disclose something to you related to what I'm working on. Everything that's disclosed is considered to be confidential. And, and that makes sense to me. So you're not having to get into the specificity you would in the application, but you're just saying, hey, we, we, I'd like to discuss business with you. Everything that I'm getting ready to give you in furtherance of that is going to be confidential. Correct. And there are a few different approaches to it. Some people will make sure they label everything they give as confidential, which leaves no room to argue about what was and wasn't covered. But then that leaves the situation where, well, you can't, you can't always label something because it's not always tangible. Um, and frankly, you can forget to label things, in which case you've created a problem for yourself. So I typically just take sort of a shotgun approach. Um, and it basically try to get it to cover just about everything. And every NDA will have certain standard exclusions for things that are publicly available, things the person already knew about, or things that they came up with through some other source. Do you have your own kind of uh, t template NDAs, or do you, or is it every situation is a new situation that, that requires its own document? Uh, I work with, I've worked on a template that I've been using for years. Um, and essentially what happens is when somebody comes back to me and there's a problem, I then can modify the template to try and help with that. Uh, years ago, I had a guy that um, had somebody under an NDA, and they were just disclosing the invention to them, and some smart aleck decided, well, you know, this is a widget, and the handle's on the left side. Well, I can put the handle on the, le on the right side, too. So they suggested that, and then they decided to try to claim that they were a co-inventor, yeah. uh, which can lead to some pretty adverse consequences. So, you know, my NDA specifically state any IP discussed belongs to the person disclosing which is pretty onerous if you're dealing with somebody that's um, you know, dealing with a lot of inventors or maybe they're inventing themselves, they may not want to sign something like that. We talked uh, you know, several weeks ago to a uh, uh, venture capitalist who was like that. He just he didn't refuse to sign them all together. If there's not yeah. a certain level of trust, he's not going to bother. Um, but you know, being an attorney, it's, tried to hard, it's real hard to try and tell people to trust people you don't know. That's right. And so when you walk in in those kind of meetings, those pitch meetings or those, you know, when you're looking for angel investors, I guess there has to be sort of a level of blind trust because, you know, the people with that, with those kind of resources aren't looking to expose themselves to potential liability for taking on a, a, a business opportunity. Exactly. They may, they have to worry about a number of things. You may be disclosing something to them they heard last week or something they've had in the, in the works for six months already, in which case they don't want to argue with you later about who actually owned it when they came up with it some, through some other source. And people don't always have a good feel for what an NDA should and shouldn't cover. You know, sometimes people will want somebody to sign an NDA, but the thing they're disclosing isn't patentable at all. It's something that's really already out there in the public domain in some other form, but they don't necessarily understand that. Uh, so that can lead to a lot of disputes that are rather unnecessarily and waste everybody's time as well. Yeah, the, a while back, um, we had a good, um, we had Michael Kane on the podcast. So I'd encourage everybody to go to listen to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Play or Google. We had Michael Kane on with the Wilmington Investment Network, and he, he gave some really good insight to, to small businesses and startups about, uh, about how to kind of how to win your presentation and, and what's persuasive to, uh, to angel investors. So yeah, certainly uh, onerous uh, NDAs are not persuasive and not helpful getting that done. But uh, yeah, there, you know, you can go on patents all day. Maybe we'll circle back to that later, but uh, we're going to take a quick break and then get into a little bit of trademark law and discuss uh, trademarking. What, when is it necessary? What can it do? What can it do? All right. Sounds good. All right. We're back with Russell Nugent. Uh, patent attorney, intellectual property attorney, talking some uh, some important concepts for for local business people. Um, I wanted to transition from patents to trademark law, 
And in trademark specifically, what what kind of comes to my mind, or, or the way that the way I relate it is, uh, is coming to America, one of one of my favorite movies. And you have uh, the you have McDowell's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, with the what they got the Big Mac, we got the Big Mike, we got the you know the, they got the Golden Arches, we got the Golden M's, or you know that sort of thing. And that's kind of the way I understand it is that a trademark is is designed to kind of pr- protect your brand or your, or your image. Is is that kind of is would you say coming to America is it a depiction of uh, trademark infringement? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in real life, that would have gotten shut down pretty quickly, uh, especially with a, a trademark as famous as, as McDonald's. Uh, they would have gone to court very fast and gotten that shut down very, very quickly before that guy got a chance to really make any money. So one thing I think that interests people, and I guess it applies in the patent and the trademark context, but is, uh, is patent trolls and trademark trolls. To what extent does that exist and, and to what extent can it be effective? Try, uh, that refers to the idea of a troll refers to somebody, uh, com- usually a company that doesn't make anything or produce anything, but they have the rights to something, usually a patent, occasionally trademarks. And so all they're really doing is looking for opportunities to sue people. Um, and so to the extent that that's all you're dealing with, you're getting people that, you know, people, practitioners in the area just can't stand those people. And, uh, you know, they can make a lot of trouble for somebody very quickly because it's a lot cheaper to attack in that respect than it is to defend. Uh, or at least it can be, and you're not risking a huge business where you're, you know, with this huge line of business where you're making all this money. You're just somebody that's kind of throwing something to the wall to see if it sticks. So it's something that's really been um, uh, 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 cast in a negative light uh, with respect to the the patent law community in particular. The problem comes in with um, the way people do business these days. There are legitimate reasons why you, as the patent owner, might not be the person actually making the thing. That's what a lot of these uh, entry-level or smaller inventors are looking to do is to license. They're not looking to be Walmart. They're looking to license to Walmart or sell something to Walmart so they can make their money that way. So it can, there's a, there's a little bit of a, a blurry line, so to speak, between the people that we all agree we don't want out there and the people that are legitimately licensing and enforcing their patent and or their trademark rights. One of the things that I thought was interesting, so I'm a really big football fan, and so I guess my my favorite NFL team is the Washington football team, is is what they're referred to now, the the team formerly known as the Redskins. And what's been interesting is there's been a lot of discussion about uh, would the Redskins change their name for quite some time. And so what, what happened is you had a lot of people that were opportunists say, well, what would they be likely to change their, what would the likely name change be? And so you had people buy up uh, Washington Warriors, the Washington Red Tails, the Washington Red Tail Hawks, the Washington—you know—several names that were were taken out. And I think there was the—I listened to an interview with one with one of the gentlemen that acquired several of these names, and he essentially admitted that his trademarks were were bogus because he hadn't put them into use, which is which is part of it. But I think there seemed to be a strategy on his part of. An organization as big as the Washington football team or Washington Redskins or an NFL organization, it's not going to be – it's worth the money for them to acquire this from me because of the difficulty I can, I can uh, make for them to go defeat it. That's, um, that is also a behavior that the uh, profession has um, cast in a negative light quite a bit. As a matter of fact, this happened a lot 20 or plus or so years ago when the Internet started, when e-commerce started to become a much bigger thing, people did the same thing with dom- domain names. It's called cyber squatting in the end. They would buy a domain name, say www.panavision.com uh, or something, and then try to sell it to the Panavision folks. That was actually a real case um, that my, a professor of mine actually discussed, or they worked on themselves. Um, end result is, getting back to your specific example, 
the only way to register the trademark is to prove you're using it in commerce. So if you're registering it so that you can, I don't know exactly what the class would, description would be, if you to, to run a football team and you know run a football team, then the only way you're going to actually get the registration issued is to commit some sort of fraud. In addition, um, you can file a trademark application with, you either tell them you're using the mark already in commerce or you tell them you have an intention to do it in the future. And that's what this gentleman was, was said his thing was, that he had an intention to do it, but then I guess that intention never came to fruition. Well, the problem he has is he went on national TV or radio and announced everybody that that was a lie, that he had no intention. His intention was to sell the thing to the, well, to the Washington football team. Yeah. Um, in which case, again, that's reason to invalidate his application just because the, he's essentially lied to the USPTO. So that's how that's, the problem with that kind of behavior is it's difficult to police because most people aren't going to publicly announce that's what they did. They'll just lie and say, yeah, I was really going to do something with this. Yeah. Um, and they could probably be a little savvier by doing that with a different class because we know some individual like me is not going to go run their own football team, but that doesn't mean I won't sell the t-shirt. Yeah. Um, so, but what getting back to the cyber squatting issue, that problem became so big, they simply amended the statute, the Lanham Act, and made that specifically illegal. So if you, if for some reason you found out McDonald's did not have www.mcdonalds.com trademarked or, or registered in their name, and you registered it with the intention of selling it to them, you've actually violated federal law at this point. Gotcha. And that, that makes sense. And that's, that's the way it should be. You know, we were talking earlier about, um, about kind of the, the, the McDonald's example and coming to America, what's the ideal situation? If you're starting a business from scratch and you can do it any way you want, what, what should somebody that's thinking about making a significant investment do to kind of create and develop their brand? Well, um, as far as picking a strong trademark, um, it helps to understand how they look at these things. Um, so there's sort of a continuum. At one end of the continuum, we've got trademarks that are made up words. Uh, I think Exxon is pretty is a pretty safe bet there. Um, and you've also got that same end of the spectrum, words or trademarks that consist of words that have nothing to do with their product, like Apple for computers. Um, at the opposite end of the, of the spectrum, you get stuff that's said not to function like a trademark at all. Those would be generic terms, like law firm for a law firm. Uh, company in general is something you can't tie up. There are certain words that everybody should be allowed to use. So to the extent that you come up with something that's arbitrary and nonsensical and doesn't really describe your product or your business in any way, and it's something you came up with yourself, that's usually a lot easier to register without you really doing a lot of searching ahead of time because you made it up yourself. Um, it's unlikely you, if you're going to make up a nonsense word, you'll make up the same one that, that I would necessarily. Um, this works also with graphics as well, as long as it's something that's got a little bit, got some moving parts to it. You know, if your graphics are a couple of geometric shapes and you're trying to register in a very crowded class like class 25 for clothing, you're going to be dead in the water right off the bat. There's going to be somebody else there with similar shapes out there. But the key is to try to pick something that's not even remotely similar to what's already out there in that field. So the general rule is that you and I can use the exact same trademark to advertise uh, completely different and unrelated products and services. You know, the Humphreys, Humphreys for a law firm versus Humphreys for motor oil, for example. Those two would not necessarily run afoul of each other unless one is famous like the McDonald's brand is. Well, and so that's interesting. So I would presume, I think, um, McDonald's, I remember I, that was another movie, the Bruce Willis, or um, not Bruce Willis. Who? who Eddie who, Murphy. Did, no, I was I was talking about um, the Michael Keaton movie about the found about Ray Kroc and how he took McDonald's from a local California restaurant to being a nationwide chain, and it's so you know I would presume that McDonald's has you know thousands of trademarks or maybe not thousands but at least hundreds, but the origin of that was someone's name. 
Right, and that's a good point because there's the there's a series of uh, of rules the USPTO has and the courts have about what does and doesn't function as a trademark. Um, and I know I just used Humphreys as an example. That's actually a bad example because more often than not, a something that's merely a surname or a last name, something that's easily recognizable as a last name, is not going to be said to indicate to consumers that that's a brand name right off the bat. McDonald's does not have this problem because they've literally sold billions and billions of burgers around the world, and everybody, every man, woman, child in this country, in this world, actually knows exactly who they are. Um, their fame really takes care of that problem. What happens is if you use something like that over time and you develop uh, an, uh, sort of I, uh, an identity out there as a brand name, then you can register something like that. Um, but uh, there are a number of things like, um, you know, like uh, somebody's name that are in, in theory not supposed to be registrable right off the bat. The irony is, in my experience, while you may have that trouble with a last name like Smith, you won't have that trouble with a first name and last name like John Smith. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, they let that fly all the time. And that's kind of one of the things. So it's it's sort of a, a tricky standard with names because I'm thinking about the situation where you know there's probably Humphreys or especially Smiths and McDonalds and and plain names where somebody might be cross country from you, and you both independently do the same thing. For for all I know, there's a Humphreys law firm in in California or New Mexico, but you know neither of us have developed any kind of brand name where somebody in California would know who we are. How, how does it work, kind of going back to this first to file concept um, with trying to register a trademark when you've got two people doing independent, independently doing the same thing in different parts of the country? Um, that's another situation where the USPTO is not going to split hairs and go and try and figure that out for you. Um, and it will work to the advantage of somebody to register first, even if they weren't the first to use the mark. Now, trademark rights arise out of use, not like patent rights, in which case, in the end, the, the senior user, the one that started using first, if they don't register first, they're at a significant disadvantage, but they can go through a, it's an expensive process uh, or, or proceeding where they actually take the rights from this other entity. But what the, the courts will essentially do if the marks are confusingly similar is to try to figure out who started using the mark first and that's the one that's supposed to have the rights. Well, one of the things I think that we've both experienced and kind of seen is is people make the mistake of uh, assuming that they've secured a business name or a brand through, um, the, through their corporate entity filing, such as their Secretary of State filing for a corporation or an LLC, or you'll see somebody believe that they've established their, their brand name by uh, taking out a DBA mm -hmm. and doing business as. Um, kind of back to my original point, like if, if you were going to do it, if you were going to start up a, a new company, what would you do on the front end to protect your, your idea and, and try to help create a brand? Well, you can always file an application right off the bat, even if you start using, like we discussed before, they have these intent to use applications. So if I know I'm going to be investing in the name, uh, then frankly, one, I should search uh, the trademark records, so do an actual formal search to see if there's something out there that's confusingly similar, whether it's at the federal level or the state level. But two, you should go ahead and register or apply to register sooner rather than later so that your application's first in line, because what the USPTO looks at is who filed first, not who claims to have started using first. That's a separate legal proceeding they expect you to file. Gotcha. So if you're looking to, you know, the key, what I tell people is to work backwards with any kind of IP, figure out what you want to stop people from doing, and then decide to work, to work backwards from there to, to figure out how to actually protect it. And, you know, some companies, um, you know, they're not really built around a brand. You know, they might be just calling themselves XYZ Corporation, in which case they don't care about trademark law very much. Some people, the brand is the entire business. Um, people that are using a brand name they've created to just market some clothing or something like that. 
So you obviously start with the consideration of exactly what you need to protect and why you need to protect it. Um, but with trademarks, it's easy to go ahead and file an application right off the bat to at least secure your place in line. And when you get federal registration, even if there are people out there that were using a similar mark before you, you still have a significant advantage when it comes to dealing with those people. Uh, you've got the upper hand. The cheaper thing for them to do usually is to change their name rather than fight with you over the rights of the mark. Well, that's that's important and good information to know. And so I want to kind of I want to wrap up this conversation maybe in the, in the next segment, and we'll get into a little bit of a discussion about trade secrets and kind of compare and c- contrast trade secrets with our patents and our trademarks. So I'm looking forward to speaking about that in a little bit. Right, we're back with Russell Nugent, registered patent attorney, intellectual property expert. I'm appreciating the the lead-in music, TK. The, the it's nice and, and calming. I like the, the jazz. So this is this is uh, certainly good. So with trademarks, I kind of got into McDowell's, McDonald's coming to America. With trade secrets, what I kind of think of is Coca-Cola or Kentucky Fried Chicken. But I'm not a hundred. There's something I kind of wanted to clear up. So can can you patent fried chicken? Like I mean, like the recipe, kind of like you see the the secret herbs and from the from KFC. No, um, that's not patentable. At all as a matter of fact, the recipes typically aren't even copyrightable. So that's where trade secret law comes in. It picks up um, where you can develop some information, uh, put a lot of time, energy, and money into it. Uh, but it's not something that's necessarily patent. Sometimes it's patentable, but sometimes it's used as an alternative to patenting. Um, but the idea is that you've got information that's valuable as a result of not being known to your competitors because you've taken the time and the energy usually to pay somebody to help develop the, the information. That's really what trade secret law is protecting. Um, it's not necessarily, you know, so the Coca-Cola formula itself, that's actually a very well-guarded trade secret. I actually looked that up. Apparently, there are only two people on the face of the earth at any given time that know it. They're not allowed to be in the same room together at the same that's, time. Yeah, that's that a lot kind of responsibility. Thing. Yeah, it's, it's like protecting the nuclear codes or something. They're, they're real. Pro- and you got to think about it. That's a pretty interesting thing. They, you know, you, you can go buy that, that stuff and look at the bottle, and in theory, they tell you what's in it. Uh, but at the same time, nobody seems to be able to replicate it. Well, uh, and that was, that's kind of what I was thinking is, is that, you know, it's my understanding of trade secret law that one of the big factors is could this information have been obtained from, you know, from independent sources. Mm-hmm. So in the instance of, of Coca-Cola, you know, we can we can print three 3D printing. You can print, you know, all kinds of physical objects and you've got the advances in cloning that we've seen. So how can it be that somebody can't figure out how to replicate Coca-Cola? Well, uh, I don't know the science of making soda, but it must be a little more sim- a little more complicated than just taking the stuff that's written on the bottle and throwing it into something. Um, the reality is, if somebody else wants to, uh, once it actually comes up and recreates the formula on their own, they're not violating violating Coca-Cola's trade secret rights. So, that, so that's, I mean, I guess so if somebody was just to figure out how to do that, they were to break it down and determine each ingredient and started selling their own thing, then there's really nothing you could do about it. Correct. Uh, typically, the way the statutes are worded. Um, if you can reverse engineer it, or if you can figure out what the secret is by looking at it or by using the product, or you know, if the, the uh, owner of the trade secret puts something out there that tells you what it is, and it's not subject to trade secret protection. Well, this is kind of an area where I guess there's some crossover in trademark law and and trade secrets, because I guess so. Let's say we figure this out and we we unlock the code to Coca-Cola. Now, could we do kind of Justin Russell soda? And say, 
like Coca-Cola like or, or or like how 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 close can you get to telling people, look, this is Coke, but it, but it's from us, not them. The point at which you are referencing Coke is the point at which you're probably creating a problem. Um, the way trademark law would look at that is there would be you have to be careful not to create some sort of false um, uh, uh, indication of a connection between your product and, and Coca-Cola. To the extent that you avoid doing that, um, I, I think you're going to be okay, but you also got you know, a large wealthy company that's probably going to be somewhat litigious when they're coming to protect something like this. So I can't imagine that they would uh, be too shy about filing suit against you. But in theory, the idea is essentially that, um, again, if you can come up with it on your own, if it's, if it's something you can reverse engineer, that you're allowed to take it and run with it. And as far as violating their trademark rights, it's really a function of making sure that you don't create the impression among consumers that your product has something to do with or is sponsored by or they're okay with uh, you know, with, with Coca-Cola is okay with you actually making the knockoff soda. Rarely you'll see comparison, comparison advertisement. And what I mean by that is, you know, like Bud Light says that their beer's not made of corn syrup or something, but, or Bud Light says that, but they say, you know, what's Miller Light got? Or you'll, you'll see names mentioned, but for the most part, you see companies tend to dance around that. Um, is, is there certain things you can't do with respect to using other people's brands or trademarks in your own advertisements? Typically, what you'll want to do is avoid using somebody else's brand identity in any sort of commercial advertising that you're putting out there for yourself. What you can do is nominatively refer to people. I can say, you know, that Coca-Cola is a product and this is comparable, this is a similar type of product. Um, what you don't want to do is, is tr again, create some sort of impression that there's some connection between the products. So I had this fellow years ago that, uh, you know, a good example is, you know, somebody's running a, an auto body shop and they work on Hondas and Toyotas. Well, you can say I specialize in working on these two brands of vehicles. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, what you don't want to do is put the little Toyota logo or the Honda logo up on your website because that's not nominative. That's not you just naming the company. That's you doing so going a step further. It's almost like you're holding themsel yourself out as being affiliated with those companies when you do that. That's what the courts typically conclude and worry about, yes. And so in, in that situation, we were talking about things that you can brand. You know, we talked about names such as you used Exxon as an example or logos, um, but you know, you can also trademark phrases uh, from from my understanding, like that that you associate with your business. Right. Um, yeah. Anything that's that, frankly, functions as a brand identifier is, in theory, subject to registration as a trademark. And odd examples would be things like smells and tastes. Um, there aren't a lot of those that are registered, and that's really because they tend to be functional. Anything that's functional is not supposed to function as a trademark. Uh, which is say if you've got cough syrup, cough syrup that tastes like strawberries, well, it probably tastes like strawberries to get kids to drink it because it's nasty otherwise, and kids don't like drinking cough syrup. Yeah. Um, so taste and smell are hard to register in that respect because, do, but again, it's the way they function, the way people perceive them. Uh, we were talking last week uh, about color doing the same thing. There are groups that will try to register a particular color as it's not a trademark; it's considered trade dress, but it's the same kind of protection. The problem with that is we usually don't necessarily associate a color by itself with a particular brand or identi brand identi as a brand identifier. Um, you know, I recognize the, the McDonald's arches, but if you just show me something that's yellow, I won't automatically associate that with McDonald's. Do you have to register trade dress, or is that something that exists outside of the, the patent trademark office? I believe there's some common law trade dress um, 
protection out there. I'd have to actually have to triple check. From the standpoint of I've defended a few of these things, and from the standpoint of, of defending them, if it's not registered, you're going to have a hard time proving that you have anything to protect. Part of the problem with trade dress is it's assumed trade dress really has to do with the look and the feel of a product or its packaging. Um, and those aren't things that are automatically assumed to identify a brand either. Uh, it's got to be kind of distinctive over time. Um, and so it's hard to convince another pat pra practitioner that, you know, so-and-so's trade dress is similar to your own and you can protect it without you showing me that you did something, you know, that uh, is going to, you can either prove that somebody recognizes that as a brand or prove that you're able to jump through the hoops with the USPTO. Yeah. yeah and so when we were talking about the, your slogans or mottos and things like that that you can trademark like uh, you know I believe an example of that is Michael Buffer let's get ready to rumble I believe that's a, a trademark slogan because it's associated you know on its own it wouldn't have anything to, to do with um, with with boxing or, or, or fighting but you know it's something that he put to that so when you're doing that if we have our soda company can we say same thing as Coca-Cola, but cheaper. Can that be like? Can that be a a, a a trademark line, or is it? Or is you get in trouble when you're referencing somebody else's trademark within your own? They're not going to register that, to say the least. They will automatically say that's going to create a false designation of origin or a false association between the two brands. Gotcha, and that makes sense. And and that you know you can't. It's got to be. That's that's sort of the purpose. Is it's to help you identify your your identity. To separate that, be it you know the the Toyota symbol or some of them that you mentioned. Sometimes there's certain you know apples a good example. There's certain symbols and logos that just kind of have a, almost a, a meaning of themselves. Yeah, that kind of behavior will wind up diluting the ability of the mark to function. Um, that happens. That's where the I keep mentioning famous trademarks. They get more protection. They have certain causes of action or certain things you can sue people for. Uh, that you and I wouldn't be able to with our brand identifiers and dilutions one of them and that's where you're using a trademark uh, that is famous or very similar to a famous one but you're using it in a completely different area uh, than the owner of the trademark for example we know McDonald's what we know they're a fast food joint they don't operate uh, a, a motel chains for example to the best of my knowledge but they're so famous the law presumes that if you saw the McSleep in on the side of the road your first thought would be hey I wonder if that's associated yeah. with McDonald's and so they get that uh, that extra protection which is referred to as dilution and so when you're referring to you got a tagline that's referring to another mark arguably you're, you're creating that problem as well because you're preventing you're making the coca-cola mark in your example a little less distinctive with respect to coke and as a competitor you've got no business doing that yeah yeah that's that's one of those things you think like if you had the, the you know the, the Starbucks car brand or something like that you know it just it's it's one of those things where it's a, a dilution situation and um, they have additional protections in hand and as famous as those marks are why would you pick them if you're not trying to write on their reputation in yep. some way well so how does it work with trade secrets then I mean is there do trade secrets exist on their own or do you have to do you have to declare them to be a secret and kind of go through the coca-cola situation of only two people get the code at one time and they can't be together or something like that the uh, both the, the uh, one of the more positive more negative aspects of trade secret law is that it's there's no registration process um, and that can actually make them both easier and harder to protect and defend uh, simply because there's nothing you can point to like a trademark registration or a patent that says this is mine the government says it's mine you know there's always with the registration there's a presumption that the trademark belongs to you or the patent there's a presumption the patent is valid for example uh, with trade secrets you don't get any of that 
Um, the statutes are vague on purpose. Basically, they state that the information needs to have value as a result of not being known to your competitors. It's got to have some sort of commercial value to it. And it's got to be subject to uh, efforts reasonable under the circumstances to ensure secrecy. So the idea is, one, you're doing something to keep it secret, and two, since you can always do more, are you doing at least you know, what a reasonable person under the circumstances would do? With Coca-Cola, you know, that seems like it could be overkill. You know, they definitely aren't under-protecting that trade secret under those circumstances. Well, when we get back from our final segment, we'll, we'll wrap up trade secrets, talk about what you can do to protect your, um, you know, create a trade secret, protect it, and get into a little bit of copyright law. All right, we're back with Russell Nugent. It's going to be our last segment, and I just wanted to give everybody an opportunity to call in. This is a good opportunity to speak with Russell Nugent um, and get some answers for your business or ideas. Um, so if you want to, please give a call, 910-299-7535, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do a little bit of, we'll have a discussion. All right. Well, Russell, um wanted to tie it in kind of the back to um, – to the trade secrets. If you're a local business and you've got something, either a formula or some information that you want to protect, what's the what do you need to do to try to get it classified as a trade secret, which would kind of grant it certain protections? Um, in, its, in its most basic form, what you need to do one is not disclose it to anybody that you don't need to. Um, oh, sorry, I apologize. I didn't realize we had a call in there, so uh, sorry to ask. I didn't. Uh, we we got somebody coming in, so let's let's see what they got to say. How are you guys? Doing great. How are you? Doing good. I'm so excited that there's a show on the air that talks about this because I have applied for and received multiple patents and, and trademarks myself, and I had nowhere to go to to find out how to do this. I, I tried LegalZoom. I tried to do this on my own, and I realized that you have to find an attorney, and it's not cheap, but there's so many office actions and there's so many things that you have to respond to and it's very legal and not everybody has that legal background to do this absolutely yes yeah, i was i was impressed I, mean, I, I thought from what you were saying it sounded like you had done several on your own that's a pretty impressive feat no no i i, I tried i did I, I i tried to go the cheap route and i tried to 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 do it on my own those commercials are are very are very good uh, and, you know, and I looked at it from that perspective, but there's always something else that they need. There's always an office action that needs to be answered. And it's so important if you have a good idea to, to find that right attorney that, that you can work with. I, I wish I'd have heard you guys a couple of years ago because I had to go out of town outside of Wilmington to, to find somebody. And I think it's great to, to hear you guys on the radio and, and to be able to, to talk about this process because there's a lot of business owners here in town, you know, whether it be somebody in the automotive industry that figures out some special thing that can be an OEM part that can fix a problem or, you know, anywhere, you know, the difference between, you know, a functioning patent and a design patent and, and just the amount of office actions that are needed in the maintenance on trademarks? 
Yeah, there's a lot of specialized rules that relate to this kind of stuff, and patent law in particular is unforgiving for somebody that is learning and just does not know exactly what they're doing. It's a tough uh, learning curve to, to have to move up. Um, and, you know, there's so many things you can do, and it's, it's really, you know, it's kind of like building a house in some way. If you, if you mess up the foundation, it really doesn't matter how good a job you do on the rest of it, you're going to have a, a messed up house. Uh, other areas of the law, for example, like trademark law, is at least a little more forgiving, and you can always try again. Uh, patent law, obviously, if you oftentimes by uh, putting the application and you're creating prior art that will prevent you from going and trying again if you don't actually get the, the patent through the first time. And what I imagine you've dealt with, at least on one level or another, are these 112 rejections where the examiner is saying, you know, you've got this, these three words in your claims. Show me where they are in the specification. You've got to get them out of your claims. They're not supported and that kind of stuff. It can be pretty nitpicky, um, particularly in the patent context. Uh, it's definitely not some patents in particular are something I would not um, suggest anybody try doing on their own. Trademarks, you can get lucky. Um, it really kind of depends on what you're doing. They have a lot of odd little rules about um, you know how to use the trademark. With it'll trip up people using or they're selling things like clothing and mugs and and and, and uh, uh, stickers, for example. There's this ornamental use exception that I spend. I have no idea how much time trying to explain to people, and nobody seems to get it because it's just a dumb rule. It's counterintuitive. But it is a, a clear rule that we've got to follow, or you've got to follow, or got to uh, work around one or the other. Uh, but yeah, it's. Well, um, go ahead. I was going to say, I'll read you the first letter, uh, first sentence from the, the letter that my attorney had recently just sent me for one of mine and said, an affidavit for the above trademark registration stating that the above mark is still in use must be filed in the Patent and Trademark Office between the dates of March 31st, 2020 and March 31st, 2021. Otherwise, the registration will be canceled. And, you know, that, that you need a good attorney, you know, I, I think it's awesome that you guys are talking about this. You need a good attorney that, that can help you maintain the investment that you've made in, in this. So I think the show is awesome and, you know, it's, it's much needed for our business community. We're really, really glad you feel that way. I wish I'd run into you a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah I, I appreciate your <laughs> your call, and maybe we'll have Russell back on in the future. We can do some some can I patent this type type segments or, or something like that, you know. But Ru Russell's very good, and I think he's a great resource for the southeastern North Carolina community because a lot of times you have to go out of town or even out of state to to work with somebody. And the nice thing is, you know, Russell's available here to you can sit down and meet with him or or give him a shout, and he's very accessible, and it's 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 not as uh, it, it's definitely a more comfortable process that that can lead to better results in certain situations because you have more um, interaction with your, your your attorney and are able to really drive home what you're trying to accomplish. Well, I'm a, I'm a listener of The Big Talker, and, and I'll tell you what, this show is awesome, and I look forward to, to hearing you guys week after week. So thank you very much. All right, thank, thank you. you. All right, so I, th I think before we took the call, we were, we were talking about how do you protect your trade secrets. Right. Uh, so the idea there is really planning. Um, what I run into, where what you'll see in the field are uh, employees and employers that have parted on bad company, and the employer really wants just to prevent the employee from going to work for a competitor, from opening a competing shop, and so they'll try to use trade secret law to do that, and they start trying to work backwards. With, with trade secrets, it just does not work. Um, you kind of need to know what ahead of time you're trying to protect. You need to make sure the people that are exposed to it understand, not that it's just confidential, but that it's a trade secret. It's something that is company property that they are not allowed to possess or use outside of work without the company's permission. Um, and it, a lot of times it really comes down to what kind of information you're trying to protect. You know, everybody tries to protect um, 
uh, like customer lists and that kind of thing. But that can be a little difficult to do because I, as a customer, if I'm calling in, you know, uh, getting a quote on one, you know, a particular product, I may well go and give a competing business the exact same information when I'm checking out their product as well. Um, what the courts are really looking to do is to make sure you can a business can protect a large amount of a, a large investment of time, energy, and money in a particular type of information that otherwise you wouldn't have, and that everybody out there isn't going to necessarily uh, come across very easily. You know, a good example was this. Uh, there's a case out of North Carolina that has this this company that finished fabrics. Um, they had uh, they sold to large uh, retailers. Uh, each retailer needs a specially designed fabric. It has to have certain qualities and who knows what. So I don't know much about fabric myself. Um, and, but it would take up to a year for them to work out the process to most efficiently make a particular customer's fabrics. It can easily cost them a million dollars to do so. That is something that you protect as a trade secret. And that's something the courts, if you try to protect as a secret, that they'll actually go out of their way to try to, to, to help you protect. So it's like you can't necessarily make something a trade secret just by saying it's so. You know, like say here, employee sign this agreement that says that my that our that the customer list is a trade secret. That by itself helps, but wouldn't be dispositive. It's there's too much. Somebody like me can poke a lot of holes in a situation like that. So we got a couple minutes left. I'd like to briefly touch on copyrights, sure. and so kind of with our examples of what they are. So a copyright would be uh, typically, from what I understand, maybe works of art, such as or it doesn't have to be art, but uh, but a, a writing or a picture or a a song or things of that nature. Typically a creative expression that's not going to be covered by a lot of the other areas of, uh, of uh, IP law. Um, it doesn't cover, uh, it's important to understand it doesn't cover the concept that it covers the expression of the idea. You and I are both free to go paint our own picture of the exact same sunset or the exact same uh, battleship or what have you from the exact same view as long as we're not copying each other. So it protects the expression not the idea of the expression and it doesn't protect some things like it typically doesn't protect as much factual information. The good example there is the, uh, the recipe. Uh, recipes are a good a classic example of what's not protectable, but the selection, the arrangement of the recipes in the book, that can actually be uh, uh, subject to copyright protection. Um, short phrases are something that, again, people would like to copyright, but typically can't. That's trademark. Trademark law is going to wind up taking care of that for them. Um, but it, it really were, it's really designed to protect some sort of creative expression of some of some sort. And the, the trolls are out in copyright law as well. They are. Um, yeah, you'll get, um, and they actually have a, a very uh, powerful means of figure, finding stuff that's not really that easy to find. I've had people uh, contacted about a, by a copyright owner when they had something stuck on a web page that you needed a, a password to, to access. So it wasn't publicly available, but they still have tools where they can find that stuff. Uh, so the key to understand is that copyright usually vests in whoever creates the, uh, the expression itself. So don't take stuff off the internet just because it's easy to take. You didn't create it. it the copyright's almost certainly owned by somebody else. Well, Russell, I appreciate you coming on. I hope you'll come back again, and uh, maybe we can we can find some ways to do something interactive, and maybe do some discuss some patents or get in a little bit further in depth into um, into some copyright law and trade secret law. Can you can you tell everybody how to contact you? Sure, um, I'm available through the Humphreys Law Firm. Um, you, the direct line is what nine one zero three three two zero seven two one. You can go to our website, HumphreysFirm.law. Um, and uh, frankly, everybody's contact information is, is available there as well. My email is russell at humphreysfirm.law, and my direct line is 910-899-0236. Just uh, 
uh, you know, email, phone, and uh, is, is the easiest. Uh, I don't typically deal with text messages while I'm at work. No, no, nobody likes that. Well, and I'd highly recommend that anybody that's got an invention or that um, that's starting a business to, to sit down and talk to Russell for a little bit. He's a, a great resource, and he'll put you in the right direction, and he always has his client's best interest at heart, and will uh, will take care of you. So uh, thank you, everybody, for listening this week, and I'll be back next Thursday from 6 to 7 on the Big Talker 106.7.